This is an ABC podcast. So why do you have the radios? Um, we go very far off track. Yeah, we do. This is Off Track, the ABC's nature nurturing program, where we troop into the great outdoors every single week. I'm Ann Jones. One of my favourite things in all the world is to record yeah, wild sounds. So and Victoria Austin from the University of Western Sydney yeah. is the same. And you're good to go. So I'll put it on record and on pause. Yep. So then just hit record again. Today we're aiming to record something that dispels a huge myth about lyrebirds and really about all songbirds, that the females don't sing. This is the third of three episodes where I've been trying to redress a bit of a fake news problem in the world of lyrebirds. So let's recap what we've heard so far. The stories in the media about lyrebirds repeat over and over again. That's the extraordinary lyrebird, one of the greatest mimics in nature. No, uh, not with birds, nor kookaburras. Think again. And it's always about the males. He's acknowledged the finest vocalist amongst the large birds of the world. You promised to tell us as to whether birds really the bird with the crescent moon But most of what they're basing those sorts of stories on is a couple of captive bred birds like Chook. who acted very differently to wild birds. It'd be sort of like expecting a wild dingo to bark on command, to be an obedient lapdog. In the wild, the lyrebirds dance to the beat of their own drum. They have complex social interactions that extend way beyond mating dances, and it's all culturally transmitted, similar to what we do as humans. They learn from other lyrebirds, and actually, human-made sounds don't impact on their choice of mimicry so much at all. So the myth of the flute song in the New England Highlands? It's just that. It's a myth. It's all the lyrebird's own superb song. So let's get to today, when Victoria Austin is preparing to walk down the golden staircase in the Blue Mountains in the depths of winter. She's writing a PhD at the University of Western Sydney, and it's all about females. It's moving them out of that categorisation of female lyrebirds as a reward for the male for making the sound of a shrike thrush and shaking his booty. They have their own story. Okay, so this, ter- this is a territory along here of a female, and the females come back to the same territory year after year, and they often nest very close to a previous nest. So her nest is a little way in here. As you can see, it's quite steep, which is part of the reason they choose this area. They often like to nest on boulders facing downhill, and we think that that's because it gives them a quick escape from predators. So that's part of their nest site choice. So when you go in, just be just be aware there are loose boulders and things, so maybe don't follow directly behind because it's very easy to let um, boulders loose in this environment. It's hard going. But in my experience, 
Scientists doing fieldwork are driven by a force from within that makes no obstacle too great. In Victoria's case, not even a recently reconstructed knee and scrambling up an almost vertical mountain is going to stop it. Uh, they're extremely unique. They're a what is called a basal ossine passerine, so um, that means their lineage is very old. So they've been around a very long time. So they have a very slow life history compared to other birds. They also have some unique habits. They don't fly a lot. They can glide, so you'll see them leap from trees, but they spend a lot of their time on the ground. How would you describe a female lyrebird? Female lyrebirds are... I guess they're a kind of a chestnut browny colour with a, a little, it's a bit more dark on the wings, like a red. Lyrebirds underneath their throat kind of have a rufous patch, so females will sometimes have a little bit of colouring under there, depending on their age. So to look at, they're not, uh, colour-wise, they're not that, I guess, vibrant. They have what we call a plain tail, so males have the a very long, beautiful tail. Females have a shorter one, but they use it, can use it in fan displays. So if they're startled, you'll see them fan it out. And they've got a tiny little crest that when they're alarmed kind of pops up. Seems to be exaggerated sometimes in um, pictures of them, <laughs> but there's certainly a little crest on top there. Uh, so this is an old lyrebird nest. Uh, it's last year's nest, 2017 nest. Oh, wow. And as you can see, the roof is still there, but it's collapsed in, so we definitely know it's old. Um, but the other giveaway is the old egg inside. So at the back, the egg has been protected, I guess because the top has caved in uh, and it hasn't decayed. it is actually about the size of a hen's egg. It is quite a large egg. Yeah, yep, it's quite large. Um, the colour varies quite a lot from grey to like a brown colour. The nest itself is a huge pile of sticks at the bottom where she's built up a platform. Yep. And then it's um, like a pouch almost of smaller grass, moss, she really has a thick layer in which she'll incubate her egg. It's very, very well lined. Um, so the amount of effort that these birds put into building the nest is just incredible. It does vary from bird to bird. Why that is the case, we're not sure. I'm hoping to look at that as well. Uh, it could be age-related. So young birds, inexperienced, might build a really large nest. Or um, sometimes the investment, they might put less into it if they don't have enough energy or they're not as good a quality. This female... I kind of wonder whether she might be very young or very old with the fact that this egg didn't hatch. Um, and the nest, to be honest, isn't the best nest I've seen. So it's a little bit small and she hasn't put a lot of work into the back of it. So what does it mean for this individual female though that this egg was unsuccessful? What does it mean for her breeding season? Uh, essentially it means her breeding season is over. So the chance of a lyrebird breeding again after the loss of egg is very low. They only lay one egg per season. There are reports of birds occasionally laying two or three. They're very rare and the success of those extra eggs is it, they don't hatch essentially. So to lose an egg in a season is a big loss. Loss for these birds is, is high so they have a very long, um, a very slow life history. So that means that incubation is very slow and so is um, rearing of the young in the nest. So Incubation is about five to six weeks and the young are in the nest for about six weeks as well. So that's a very long period of time for them to be exposed to predators and anything else that can go wrong, you know, if the weather isn't right and they're not getting enough food. And then you've got predation rates once they leave the nest. So 
the success rate is probably quite low. It's quite a beautiful structure, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and yeah, females have a particular way of building a nest so you can kind of get to know a female and they have preferences and quite often you know a, a bird that will nest in a tree you'll often find her, her nest in a tree this female on her current nest it's a very similar kind of shape uh, and quite a small nest again so she obviously has a particular style it feels like we're uncovering a secret world on this mountainside a world where the flashy tails of the males are far below where a secretive female has been living, perhaps for years. Where I might hear new sounds. The thing with the history of female song, I mean, most of our studies of songbirds originated in the Northern Hemisphere, where it's seasonal, there's an establishment of breeding territories during the breeding season and males are very obvious. And so all of our studies were based from here. And then in the 1990s, we started doing more research in the tropics and people went, oh, hang on a minute, female birds do sing. But then we didn't acknowledge it fully. We said, okay, but it's the exception to the rule. And it wasn't until 2014 that they actually did a phylogenetic study that showed that not only is it widespread, so female song is present across 32 families of songbird, but that it was ancestral, that the very first female bird possessed song. So when you think of the long history of science, it was only 2014 that we fully acknowledged the extent of female song. How much have female lyrebirds been studied in the academic sense? Bits and pieces, but not in a huge amount of detail. Females were, in terms of vocalisations, were overlooked. Until very recently, there was almost nothing on female vocalisations in lyrebirds. So females were really overlooked. It was thought that males were the only ones who sang. And when females did sing, it was thought to be a byproduct of sexual selection. So very rare, only on occasion. But... The complicating factor with lyrebirds is that during the non-breeding season, males lose their tail and they have the same tail as females. And so plain tail birds were sometimes thought to be male if they were singing and, and vice versa. So there really was that confusion there. Here's one of Victoria's recordings of a female. She's scratching for food and making sounds. And it wasn't until 2016 um, when a paper by DL and Wellbergen came out and they had been observing females and realised that not only do, do they sing, but they also have spectacular mimicry as well. So females, just like males, use mimicry. Here's a female that Victoria has recorded. Hear how she uses both of her syrinx to make a sound of multiple parrots at once. She is truly phenomenal.
As far as I know, a female lyrebird giving a performance like this has never been broadcast before. I've never heard such a thing. Victoria Austin. Starting with mimicry, for males we know that they use it to attract females. But for females, the question is, well, what do they use it for? And it's been shown that females will use mimicry differently depending on the context that they're in. So while they're foraging, it was shown that females will mimic more predator species. That's a brown goshawk, a leggy bird of prey with bright yellow eyes. And this is a female lyrebird mimicking it quietly. But Victoria says that when the female is close to her own nest, she mimics less threatening species. And the reason for this is not conclusively known yet. Victoria has this gorgeous recording of black cockies. They're calling in the distance, but you can hear a female lyrebird almost responding with her mimicry. Because female song and mimicry is so new to formal study, there's still a million questions and anomalies, like this. It's a recording of a female lyrebird from Victoria Austin. Is it a cat? This female seems to be mimicking a mammal, and what's more, an introduced mammal. Does this fit with the mimicking predators to make your territory sound like a really crappy place to live theory? The simple answer is the researchers don't know. Just because it sounds like a cat meow does not mean it is a mimicked cat's meow. One of the alarm calls is very high-pitched um, and very startling. If you hear it, it kind of rings in your ears and I imagine to a predator that would be quite startling. So I imagine the function of that would be to, as a means of not only long-distance communication to other birds perhaps, but um, to startle a predator away. They also have a female whistle song, which not sure of the function of that yet. Again, it hasn't been tested, but a lot of birds use song in the context of establishing and maintaining a territory. And so we suspect that that whistle song may be a way for females to not only establish a territory, but to maintain it and to advertise to other females that this is where I am. Um, you don't want to come here. Because believe it or not, Lyrebirds are actually, female lyrebirds are very territorial and there are reports of them destroying other females' nests if they're too close. So this whistle song could be very important for them to protect their own nest and advertise where they are. For a female lyrebird, she'd want to advertise her territory to others because 
firstly resources. So every territory is different. You might have a very good territory that has ample food supply or you might have a lower quality territory. Once you've established your territory, you really want to maintain and protect that. Any lyre bird that comes into that territory is, is competing with resources that are for you and for your chick. And given that females not only have to look after themselves, but they have to look after their, their young as well entirely by themselves, establishing that territory could mean life or death. But when you factor in that females are also competing with each other, you also don't want to come to blows with, with another bird and you don't want your nest destroyed. These are huge losses to a bird. So if you can sing and let, you, let them know that you're there, it's a way of avoiding conflict for both parties, I suppose. We're searching for nests as a part of Victoria's research. Victoria's got sound traps and temperature measures and all sorts of things that are going to help her further unpick the mysteries of female lyrebirds. And as you can see from this angle, you could very easily walk past the nest and not even know it was there. I still don't know where you're talking about. <laughs> I'm going to write There's a boulder, a kind of big flat yeah. boulder, and on the top of it there's a tiny little Oh mound. my... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never would have picked that. So the um, entrance is at the front. As you can see, she's on a slope. Entrance is facing downhill. And I have a camera trap at the front of it. We're hoping to catch her going in and out. What happens is that at about 7.30 in the morning, the females go off the nest and they um, forage. But they never really forage right near the nest because obviously it gives it away. So territory is about 400 metres. They can be up to 500 metres away from the nest. And hopefully um, she's a little bit away away. Um, but if she suspects we're there, she might come back. So Victoria sneaks up to the nest to set her equipment and the rest of us stand, keeping a lookout for the nest's owner. I know the other nest was collapsed, but you can kind of see a similar style. She has quite a, a deep nest. It's not very high, and she doesn't put a lot of effort into the back or the top, um, but she has a beautiful little soft arch here. But she uses tree roots and moss, um, and the lining of the nest is also made from tree roots and moss, and she only adds the feathers when, when she lays the egg. Um, I haven't actually seen this, but they shape the nest using their wings. So, um, to get that beautiful dome, once she thinks she's finished with it, she hops inside and then moves her wings up and down to give it that beautiful shape. And the life of these nests is incredible. So that nest, once she's finished with it, will stay there for three or four years, obviously degrading over time. Occasionally, they'll very occasionally reuse the same nest, but it's rare. Um, more often than not, they build cradles, finish or stop, and then they come back a year later and then start again. It's like they've got a backup plan in case there's a bad year. There she is. Making all sorts of mimicry and sounds, perhaps to draw us away from the nest. Now remember, you should never fiddle with a nest, ever. Really, Victoria Austin has ethical approval, training and permits to do this research. And as soon as the female comes, we get out of there as quickly and quietly as possible. 
and leave her to it. But putting this equipment there at the nest to observe this bird without a human having to be present opens up a whole new world of study questions, like do females sing to their eggs or to their chicks? There are anecdotal reports of females using in-nest vocalisations to their chick. So a very low amplitude kind of clucking call. Um, So there is, I would expect there to be some communication with the chick at the nest, but it's a trade-off. So when you're in the nest, if you vocalise too much, you can increase your predation rate. And this has been shown in other species as well. In terms of communication with the egg, it has been shown in other species. So fairy wrens, for example, have been shown to communicate with the egg. Um, And the reason this is interesting is because song has been overlooked in females, we don't really know about the learning process. Um, We know that males can learn from other males, um, but what role do females play in that? And given that females spend so much time at the nest, my question is, what do these in-nest vocalisations, what role do they play in vocal learning? Not just in females, but in males as well. I would imagine that females are able to influence the vocalisations of males as well. This is a typical contact call of a female lyrebird as she approaches her nest. And a little bit of whistle song. She's so loud that she clips the top off the microphone range. It's really big sound. And this is the sound of a lyrebird chick being fed. This project of Victoria Austin's, it feels unusually intimate, listening to a female shuffle her feathers in a dome-shaped nest on a rock halfway up a mountain valley, a tiny egg that's warm to the touch, warmed by a mother's body. Private sounds that have never been heard before. For me, I strongly believe that The unifying factor for all female birds is their involvement at the nest in female-specific behaviours. Every female bird lays an egg. And so I believe that is probably going to provide us with some context and understanding of of why these vocalisations have evolved in males and in females. Uh, So this female would have only laid in the last week. So she's got a long way to go in creating this egg. Perfect. It looks about suspiciously. You know, their own songs that are incredibly interesting sounds. These incredible claws and big beady eyes. Um, they're very beautiful birds. The superb sing. But we have this incredible bird that has incredible variation in its own vocalisations and shouldn't we at least know what they they are, what the extent of that variation is and at least so we know what we're going to lose. (laughs) 
Thank you to all of the Lyrebird researchers, the audience members who sent in sound, and the Lyrebirds themselves, the original musicians. I actually took the calls of the birds and used them to create most of the music and the sound design that you heard in these three episodes all about Australia's lyrebirds. Remember, if you've got lyrebirds near you, record their songs. Take a note of the day and the time and the exact location and send it into Off Track. Let us know if you'd like us to send it through to the lyrebird researchers. They're trying to track the different lyrebird dialects across the whole range of the bird. And if you love the sounds in this show, remember to subscribe to the podcast for more. For more shows, obviously, but on top of that, some things that never make it to radio. I'm Ann Jones, and remember to meet the off-track bus right here for the next adventure. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.